I was hired to run a nonprofit with no nonprofit experience. The board took a flyer on me, one that I would be a good fundraiser, which happened to pay off. But one of the skills they believed the organization needed was someone who was a good manager, who could run GLAD as an enterprise, someone who knew about goal setting, making good hires. And in my past work at Showtime and at MTV, I was known as a good manager. Turned out these skills did in fact serve me really well. And in my post-executive director days as a consultant, I spend a good deal of time coaching folks to be good leaders, managers, and supervisors. We talk about providing ongoing feedback to managing folks out who are not good fits, to slowing down a hiring process if that spidey sense of yours sees a flag on the field. Many folks, especially folks who run smaller organizations, are promoted from the program ranks, or they're founders who are hell-bent on starting a nonprofit to fill a societal gap, but maybe they didn't think it all the way through. I spend a ton of time on this podcast and in my coaching practice mentoring people on what leadership looks like and how it's a key factor in motivating staff and board, igniting in them that sense of meaning and purpose that builds job satisfaction, grows impact, and inspires forward thinking. But not today. Today we're going to talk about supervision, about management, and about the distinction between the two of them, about the critical role it plays in your nonprofit's ability to maximize its impact. We're going to offer you practical advice on how to do it well and what a game changer it can be, getting the right folks on the bus and retaining them. My guest today has written a book called Supervision Matters, 100 Bite-Sized Ideas to Transform You and Your Team. She's been in the trenches beginning as the sixth employee of a small AIDS organization in Northern California. Her next gig, 250 employees. It felt more like a business. Some folks were there for the meaning of the work. Others, just a job. Quite different from the AIDS work. She learned a lot, gained a master's in organizational psychology, and you're going to want to hear what she has to say. You'll meet somebody who understands that busy nonprofit leaders need bite-sized ideas that they can implement like yesterday. And to use a phrase I picked up from my son, you're going to want to pick up what she is putting down. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Rita Sever has worked in and with nonprofits her whole career. She worked as a staff member for nine years at an AIDS organization and another nine years at a community action agency. In her consulting practice, she works with social justice organizations throughout the U.S., working with individuals, teams, and entire organizations to help the organization be in alignment internally as they work to achieve justice externally. She has a master's in organizational psych and has taught HR in a nonprofit at the University of San Francisco and Sonoma State University in California. She has written two books. Her most recent one is Leading for Justice, Supervision, HR, and Culture, just came out in August, and it's really good. And the one we're talking about today, Supervision Matters, 100 Bite-Sized Ideas to Transform You and Your Team. So, Rita, I know you have a brand new book. Oddly, I'd like to talk about your previous one because I feel like listeners need a dose of the lessons you offer in it. I want to say thank you for joining us. I think that listeners really need what you have to say, and I'm excited about the conversation. Welcome. Thank you, Joan. It's great to be here. I look forward to our conversation. So maybe it's because I've written a book, but I love to hear how authors come to write books. It's not just about feeling you have something to say, right, but also about seeing a gap you think you're uniquely suited to fill. So I'm interested in the origin story of your book and what propelled you to write it. So I wrote my book in bite-sized pieces. I wrote it the same way it presents itself. (laughs) started out as a newsletter to keep in touch with my clients. That was how I got in the practice of writing these bite-sized pieces. And then after I had been doing that for a number of years, I started hearing several of my clients say things like, 
I wish you were, could whisper in my ear when I'm in a meeting, or I wish I could have you follow me around and tell, remind me what you're telling me. And when I kept hearing that, I started thinking, well, how could I do that? And of course, <laughs> the book idea was the obvious choice. So that's how I came to write the book. <laughs> For me, as I went out and I looked at nonprofit leadership books and I said, okay, there's a lot of nonprofit leadership books. And I, I don't think I just want to write one to say that I wrote one. And I looked at all of them to try to find the chapters that weren't in any of the books that were out there. And those are the chapters that I wrote. So, um, yeah, yeah, so I think it's always really interesting to hear the origin stories, especially for those out there who might have a book in them themselves. We often use supervision and management interchangeably. I'm somebody's manager. I'm somebody's supervisor. Then there's also leadership. And a nonprofit le executive director really has to Kind of be proficient in all of them, right? I mean, how, so that's one question is you've got you, you to do all three pretty well. And maybe you can actually help listeners understand how you define them differently. Yes, absolutely. A leader needs to show up in all those areas. For me, supervision is about the people. It's about mentoring, supporting, setting people up for success. And it's a really important part of any leader's job because if you help people be successful that you supervise, you will be successful. The organization will be successful. For me, management is more the big picture. And it includes everything, not just the people, facilities, money, everything else. You've got to keep the big picture in mind. And for me, leadership is about who you are as a person and how you show up. So are you trustworthy? Are you, do you lead with integrity? Do you have compassion and integrate the mission and the people you work with into your approach? That's how I think about those three components. So Rita, what I heard in your definition, particularly of leadership, were values, right? That leadership is really about values. Is that, was that what I heard? Absolutely. That's how I think about the how you do it. It is walking in alignment with your values, with the yeah. organizational values. And we'll, we'll get into this a little bit too, but supervision is not void of values. Absolutely. Right? That the leadership is the overarching, again, the way you show up. It should be a clear line where you show the values through every component of what you're doing. I think that's a really important point to drive home here is that supervision is not value-less. And the other thing which you said, which I, I feel like people don't see it through this lens, is that supervision is about setting up people to be successful. So there's, I don't, don't you think that there's some, I don't know, some myth we need to bust, Rita, that the supervision has this sort of connotation of like, I don't know, like almost like a, like a gotcha or something. Absolutely. It's, it does have a historical component about control. And that just sort of pulls the life out of it. Because it really is two people working for the same goal, the same mission, and they have different roles. Right. The supervisor has different responsibilities, different decision-making, but they both want the mission to be successful. So I have been an executive director, and I know a lot of them. I coach a lot of them. And they have this pleaser tendency right? They're super big pleasers. I, I totally know this because I, I am a, uh, an openly pleasing personality or pleaser personality. My listeners can decide if I'm pleasing. Um, <laughs> you have to work really hard to keep the pleaser thing in check when it comes to having people who work for you. You have a chapter called Stop Being So Nice. I'd like you to talk about this notion. This is your chapter on feedback and accountability. How do I balance this idea of 
I'm a pleaser. I know this is hard work. You know, I, I don't want you to burn out. You know, this is, this, this work takes an emotional toll on you, Tanya. Like, how do I balance that? Yes, absolutely. And those are all good considerations. There's nothing wrong with that. But there needs to be something more important than that. And that's the mission. You need to keep the mission front and center in everything. And so if Tanya is not doing her work, then she needs the feedback so that, again, she can be successful. I think that the nice thing is a real danger in nonprofits, um, the pleaser. For me, I talk about it as being nice. And it's when that is the overriding focus of our work together. We're so worried about being nice that we don't give feedback. We don't tell people what they need to know about how to do their job better, how to be successful, what's getting in the way because we're afraid they'll hurt, their feelings will be hurt. And when that is the whole culture of an organization, then we avoid all kinds of conflicts. We don't have hard conversations. And it really is a problem for organizations. So for me, I encourage people to think about being kind instead of nice. Mm-hmm. Nice focuses on how the receiver will respond to you. Will they still like me? Will they still be my friend? Where kind focuses on the giver. Am I doing this in the best way I can? Am I being clear? Am I doing this for a greater good? Then you will give the information you need to give while still holding the person with compassion. Uh, a little Brene Brown's creeping in there, right? <laughs> the clearest kind, right? It makes me think about, maybe you can grab from one of your 100 bite-sized ideas, but let's say I'm a brand new supervisor. Like I'm brand new. I've never actually supervised anyone before. And I, I think there's a lot of folks in situations, either as executive directors or within larger organizations that are first-time supervisors. And they make, you know, they make a good hire and you know, sort of, and, and I, and I want to set this person up to succeed. Any bite-sized ideas to help me think about sort of the first 30 or 60 days and how to set somebody up to succeed so that this person delivers and I can feel comfortable knowing that they're on the right track? Yes, I think it really comes down to first spending time on your own, getting that clarity about what is the purpose of the job, what does success look like, what do I need from them? What does the organization need from them? And being ready to really have clear conversations about that. And conversations go two ways. So it's not just you downloading that information, but this is what we need from this position. How do your skills match? Where do you think you'll need support? So having that clarity of what you expect from the person and building the practice of having good, strong, regular two-way conversations. For me, I talk in my book about having regular, scheduled, one-on-one -on -one conversations with each person you supervise. And if nothing else, talking about what's working, what's not working, and what's next, meaning mm. what are the priorities. Uh -huh. And again, two ways, not just top-down. <laughs> I hear this a lot. Here's something I hear a lot. Maybe you can help folks sort it out. People who believe they are being micromanaged and supervisors who do not believe they are micromanaging. And this, I'd, I'd love to chat a little bit about this because that, I feel like that gets in the way a lot when it gets labeled as micromanaging. How would you, I mean, is there a way to even define that or does it all depend? Well, I think the micromanaging comes into play when the supervisor is focused on how the work is done, not what's being done and what the outcomes will be. Okay. So in many ways, there is a need for micromanaging when a person starts. You are going to be concerned about 
making sure they learn the protocols, the processes, how we do things, all of that. So you're going to be tending to more of the details. Yep. And as they learn and grow in the job, then a supervisor should be able to back off and say, here's the outcome we're going for. Let's talk about how you're going to get there. Let's set up some benchmarks. We'll be meeting regularly, so we'll check in on your progress. And that should be able to help them back off a little over time. The other thing I would say is talk about what does micromanagement mean to you? Maybe not their first week, but maybe at six months. Mm -hmm. How's our supervision going? Do you need more support, less support? What, what, how are things going? And if they say, leave me alone, that opens the door for, I'm not quite ready to. Here's why. Right, right. What, one of the things that this speaks to is that so often people say, you know, I need another person to help me do X. And all of a sudden there's enough resources to be able to add that person that people who are put in positions of being supervisors don't understand what an investment of time it actually takes. Absolutely. My rule of thumb is you should be able to devote approximately an hour a week to each person you supervise. It may not be in person, but you're thinking about their work, you're planning their work, you may, you're meeting with them sometimes either as in a group and one-on-one, and it takes time. And absolutely, planning, supporting, problem-solving, and the regular meetings. Yep. It is an investment that will pay off, but you won't see it because what you're avoiding are problems. <laughs> Well, there's also, I mean, I like, I think in the beginning, it's it's interesting. I always, it's probably not a great analogy, but I always think about it as rope, right? Letting the rope out. And that when you first start supervising someone, the rope is closer, right? Mm -hmm. And that you're getting to know one another. You're getting to build that relationship. You're getting to see, you know, sort of, A, you're educating about the position, but you're also trying to get a sense of, you know, is this person asking the right questions? Is this person delivering on deadlines? And then as you start to see that, you can let the rope out more and more and more. And that, but I, but I think even saying that up front can make a big difference, right? It's like, cause if somebody came from some situation where they were like legitimately micromanaged, it can trigger them. It's like, oh my gosh, now I work for Joan. She's micromanaging me. I just started, right? Yes. To have that conversation and say, yeah, this is how I, this is how I approach the first 30 days of my, this is kind of my philosophy about supervision. Like that's, that would be a good conversation to have, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> Yes, and I love the idea of naming that up front. For the first three months, the first six months, we're going to be meeting every week and checking in to make sure we're on the same page. And then when we're both ready, we'll start maybe meeting every other week. We'll always meet at least once a month. Right. And just be upfront about it. Absolutely. So you spend a good amount of time talking about the importance of really relating to your staff, building a relationship through what you call intentional conversations. Talk a little bit more about what you mean by this intentional conversation. Right. For me, that is about getting to know who people are so that you can help them be successful. And I don't mean getting to know their childhood or their background or their personal life. That may happen, but what these conversations focus on is how do they do their best work? So an intentional conversation, the way I like to set it up is the start of your one-on-one -on -one meetings. And again, being transparent. I want to try this thing I heard about having an intentional conversation. <laughs> I'm going to ask a question. You answer it for two minutes and I'll answer it for two minutes. So again, it's a two-way conversation. And it's a question like, when do you do your best work? Hmm. Tell me about a day when you were really engaged. Tell me something you learned recently and what did, how did you learn it? So it's really about, again, how people do their best work and how you can support each other and work well together. I love that. I actually love that because it actually helps me better as a supervisor, helps me better understand how you operate. Absolutely. And one of the critical things of this intentional conversation is it needs to be safe. 
It really is about getting to know someone and continuing to know them. So even if in this conversation you hear something as a supervisor that makes an alarm bell go off, set it aside and address it at another time. Because Mm -hmm. if you jump on them during this supposedly connecting activity, then there won't be any more safe conversations. Very interesting. Very interesting. So a good supervisor remembers to appreciate staff, right? I call it kind of, or ask about their lives. I remember when I worked in corporate America, if somebody asked you how your weekend was, that was nice. But for me, when I got to be a nonprofit, it was more than nice. It was, is actually sort of part of my job, not just as the leader, but but to, to know somebody in 3D seemed much more important in the nonprofit sector. I think it's something that the nonprofit sector has to teach corporate America, actually. I feel like I learned to supervise more transactionally in corporate America and had to exercise different muscles when I got to the nonprofit sector. And I wonder if you could offer your reflections about, you know, sort of how you see them as different and, you know, and why that kind of relationship stuff matters so much in nonprofits. Yes, I think you're right. I think it is about not being transactional. People work at nonprofits because they want to connect. They care about some cause. They care about the world. They care about people. And that applies internally as well as externally. And so people want to be seen and heard. That's part of your job as a supervisor, to see them and hear them. I do have, I'm, have an HR background, so I do have to say, be careful. Don't force this. Follow their lead. If you say, how, their week, how was your weekend? And they say, fine. That's the end of the conversation. But if they say, great, I went with my dog for a run on the beach, Now you know a point of conversation that you can follow up on. What's your dog's name? What kind of dog? So then you build that personal connection that supports the work as well as each of you as a person. So I think it is a vital part of the work we do in nonprofits and the work of a supervisor is honoring who the person is. Yeah, I think they're they're bringing their whole selves to work, right? Absolutely. They're not at their, they've brought their heart to the job. And that's Absolutely. right. That's what something to think about. They, they've brought their heart to the job, at least if yeah. they've come for the right reason, right? That needs to be honored. Absolutely. And yeah. that is such a key part of, of my new book in terms of equity requires us to be not just inclusive, but building a sense of belonging in the workplace, because that is what people often miss when they feel like they're the only one or they're there because it looks good. So this, again, the human connection is what helps people feel like they really belong and are seen and honored. Absolutely. You're listening to Nonprofits Are Messy. Thank you for joining me today. In case you haven't picked up my latest book, during COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my first edition of Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is in paperback, and you can learn more about it at book.joangary.com. And now back to the podcast. So we're talking with Rita Sever. Rita Sever has worked in and with nonprofits her entire career, starting as a staff member for nine years at an AIDS organization, another nine years at a community action agency, and she is a consultant who works with social justice organizations, with individuals, teams, and organizations to help the organization to be in alignment internally as they work to achieve justice externally. We're talking about a book that she has written called Supervision Matters, 100 Bite-Sized Ideas to Transform You and Your Team. But she also has a brand new book called Leading for Justice, Supervision, HR, and Culture, which just came out in August. I want to talk about voice and 
I think this is a, a pretty sticky wicket for the nonprofit sector. So we were talking about the people that people are coming to their jobs in the nonprofit sector with their heart as well as their roller board of skills and experience and expertise. They also come expecting to have skin in the game, to have a voice. And that it is, as I came to learn, in most cases, there's no year-end bonus, right? It's do I feel like I own this work in some way? Do I have a voice? And I feel like as supervisors, I think this is a hard one in the nonprofit sector, is how to engage the people who work for you to enable them to have a voice when they don't always get a vote. So I wondered if you might speak to that and any strategies you've seen work really well. Frankly, I also think this is a much more prominent not to untangle with younger staff members. And so I just, I, I wonder if you could reflect on it and if you've, you know, sort of come across strategies or even language that helps, helps folks to honor that, but also... Um, not to build too much entitlement in the workforce. Yes, I absolutely agree that this is a sticky wicket. <laughs> there is, um, it's part of the psychological contract, I think, that staff come to nonprofits because they want to be a part of the work, a part of the solution. So yes, they want their voice to be heard. They want it. Often they want to be part of every decision. They yep. want to be a flat organization. Most of our nonprofits are not flat organizations. Correct. So I think it starts there, acknowledging that absolutely your voice will be invited and included, and you're not going to be part of every decision. We are not a flat organization. We want to, if, you, if it's true, we t intend to share power and become a little more flat, but you're not going to vote on everything. And then being clear when their vote is a vote and when you're asking for input and when they don't even get input. Mm -hmm. And so being able to, on a regular basis, invite their voice. So at least doing an annual survey of how things are going, what's on your mind, what's not working, and then responding to that survey. Don't do it if you're not going to respond. That's even worse than doing it. Oh, yes. But then in terms of major decisions, strategic planning, when can they have a voice? Invite their input and then let them know what you will do with their input, how it will be used. I think those are the keys. I do think the clarity and you have to have it. Right. Absolutely. And so, <laughs> right. And the pleaser is, is going, is not going to want to, is they're going to want to say, oh, you're going to, you're going to, you know, you're going to be involved in this decision. Well, well, that's not clear. Involved is not clear. Right. right. I am the, you know, this is a decision that I'm, that clearly the buck will stop with me on this decision. I could really use your insights to shape the decision that I make so that I'm not missing anything because each of you brings such a valuable perspective based on what you do here that I'd be foolish not to actually ask you for input, right? Yeah. That's clear. That's perfect. Yes, that is very clear. And that, that is an, an invitation that most people will step into. So I think that is critical because again, I've seen a couple places where people think they need to do this. So they say, let me know what you think. And every staff person says they've already made up their mind. Why should I bother? And that extends long beyond that conversation. Oh, people it has a really crazy. long tail. Yeah, absolutely. it has a really long so, tail. Yep. Absolutely. You see those yep. model that is perfect. The idea of, gee, I really want to know what you think. Why don't you go away and come back and let me know what, you know, what you think you would do in this situation. And I've, I've seen situations like that where the person has then said, 
you know, why don't you go back again and have another look at that? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And see if you come up with the correct answer. Wrong answer. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, talk yeah. about demotivating, right? Right. Absolutely. I, I'd like to talk for a couple of minutes about meetings. I feel like we actually, we almost always screw them up. Um, <laughs> and that they are seen as this thing that happens that I have to actually endure till I can get back to work. And right. so what is an ideal, let, let's say I work for you, Rita, uh, and you have a, a check-in with me every, let's say it's every week. What does that look like? Who sets the agenda? What does it look like when it's working, Rita? Okay. So I think at the beginning, I set the agenda. And okay. as part of the backing off, I will hand that off to you. Okay. I might at six months again say, Joan, we've been meeting every week for this whole period. I think we need to back off. But before we start backing off, I want to switch the agenda so that you can lead with the agenda. And then let's see how that goes. And then we'll start meeting when we're both ready every other week. Okay. So I think that's in terms of the agenda. I think that's what I do. The agenda that I would develop would probably have certainly those three points I mentioned. Let's both talk about what's working, both with partners, internally, with each other, and what's not working. What are the priorities before we meet again? And probably some bullet points of following up. How's it going with that campaign? Have you talked to our partner? Whatever those specifics are. And then ending with, is there anything else we need to talk about? Okay. So where do the, so, okay, that sounds good. And I'm thinking like one of my listeners who says, that sounds great, but there are so many like weedy tactical things we have to actually make decisions about. Rita, where do those conversations live if they don't live there? Okay. So I think that's part of what you need to work out together. So in, if that's the case, if there's a lot of nitty gritty decisions that you need to make, then maybe you have a nitty gritty meeting and then every other time or once a month, you have one of these overarching supervision meetings of how are things going and the rest are more working meetings. That's again, part of what you want to work out together. And then in addition once or twice a year, having a development meeting about, let's talk about how you're growing. What do you want to do? What skills do you want to develop? How can I help? You know, that may be in conjunction with their evaluation or it may be separate. So what I'm thinking is interesting is you're calling them different things, aren't you? Yes. Yes. So I think I, so, so I, I, I heard you say there's a working meeting there's a supervision meeting and there's a development meeting. I heard you right. use those three terms and I'm hearing people, I can, I'm hearing people in my head going, oh, oh, you mean Rita wants me to have more meetings? <laughs> no, I want you to be clear about what your meeting is and focus on that. So not more, different. Okay. <laughs> All right, so now... Let's say I have, all right, so Rita, you're the, you're the supervisor and you have a team of, let's say, four people who report to you. Do you have a meeting of your direct reports regularly? Is that something that's important? And what does that look like? Yes. So we have a team meeting. And again, depending on the work and what time of year it is, the timing of that may vary but we all meet to make sure we're all on the same page. We all know what each other's doing. That's important. And then we have the one-on-one -on -one meetings that I want to build regularly, whatever the timing of that is, at least once a month. And depending on what kind of work they're doing, they may have meetings with each other during that time too. So there are a lot of meetings, but the critical thing is being clear. What's the purpose? What's the outcome? Uh, right. Um, so I worry about something you said, so maybe you can ease my mind. <laughs> okay. You described a team meeting where every, we, we, everybody knows what's going on. How do we avoid a meeting where 
each person, it's like it's like uh, second grade, and it's time for Rita and Joan and Tanya <laughs> and Carlos to give their book reports. How do right. we avoid that kind of meeting? Absolutely. You don't set it up that way. It's not a check-in meeting in terms of tell me what you've been doing, but okay, let's talk about the gala that's coming up Friday, for example. Okay, Joan, you're working on the event itself. Tell I'm, me try- I'm actually in charge of celebrities, Rita. I'm trying to get Madonna. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So let's give me a two-minute update about where you are. Nowhere, Rita. Yeah. Nowhere. I don't think Madonna is a very realistic choice for a celebrity. <laughs> Wonderful. But I agree that the just routine check-in where people already know what you're saying doesn't help. So I appreciate that clarification. I meant people, what I think is important is that people know what each, each other's roles are. So hopefully that will be maybe a once a year conversation again. And then the other parts are updates. So what are you doing that I need to know that impacts my work? Right. Or right. What do you need from me in order to meet your goals? Right. Something like that. I have a particular reaction to this idea. Uh, I'm the boss and I have five direct reports. And we meet every other Tuesday at 11 o'clock for 90 minutes. And if you have an agenda item, send it to Natasha, who is my assistant. And then I get this mixed bag of items that have been put on to an agenda. And I don't buy that as a how you design an agenda. I, I feel like it becomes a kitchen sink. And... If I'm running the meeting, isn't it my, like, don't I set the agenda? Yes. And (laughs) (laughs) she shook her head just, I know you can't see her, but she just looked at me. She rolled, she didn't roll her eyes, but it was like, okay, how do I say this diplomatically that I really disagree with Joan here? I don't disagree. I, I think it's part of the answer. I think you set the agenda, but you set the buckets for the agenda and then staff fill in what goes in those buckets So one bucket is updates. One bucket is where are we going in the next month? Another bucket is where are we right now on something that's happening six months from now? Where are we on, you know, another bucket might be any any new concerns that have come up, partners, whatever the buckets are. Yep. Yep. Got it. How has the world of remote working changed supervision? It has made it more challenging, I think, because part of what has happened, especially at the beginning, is that connection piece dropped away. And people were dropping into the transactional form of connection and supervision. And that worked for a while because we were in emergency, but it is critical to build that back in. I have a chapter in both my books, actually, about play. I wrote my master's on the impact of play on community at work. Interesting. So I think building in five minutes for connection and play and icebreakers makes all the difference in terms of teams and supervision. Would you give me an example of what play looks like for you that would make a group of people not roll their eyes that you had used the word icebreaker? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. When I do trainings, I say that. I say, I know when I say this, some of you are rolling your eyes and dreading it and other people are going, oh boy. (laughs) So for me, an icebreaker is simply a check-in question. That's an example of an icebreaker. So tell me about your first job. Uh Let's all hear about your first job. Maybe another time the question is more thoughtful of, Tell me, to the extent you're comfortable, tell me how you're doing with the pandemic right now. Yep, yep. So it's just a time for everyone to have a voice in the meeting and to be there. I like that. I um, Because people are at home, I, I, I in fact think that I see p- where people are. I see what kind of art they have on their wall. I see some of the stuff they have on their desk or their cat or my cat, who amazingly has not made his way into my little podcast studio up here. 
But one of the things I do with uh, folks quite a lot is, okay, you have 30 seconds. Go grab a thing. Yes. Grab a thing. Tell me a story about a thing. That's it. That's their only prompt. Go away. 30 seconds. Come back. Yes. Yes. So tell me I've a story about that. a thing. Tell. I've done it in terms of look around, find something that te- speaks to you of hope and tell us about oh, it. Oh, I like that too. That's very nice. I like that. So that's wonderful. So let's move away from hope and let's move to kvetching, shall we? Okay. <laughs> How do organizations get uh, sort of a complainy kind of kvetchy culture? What, what's the... What is, What's the source of that? And any bite-sized ideas about maybe you're new and you've come in and you have the opportunity to, to sort of shift it. Like what's any, any bite-sized ideas for that? I feel like the, the pandemic has made people very tired when people are, right? People are tired. They're burnt out. They're crabby. They're cranky. Nothing sits well with them. What is the root of sort of the root of that and any antidotes? I think the complaining culture starts when people don't feel heard, when they feel like nobody's paying attention to them, nobody's listening, and nobody's addressing problems that are really getting in their way. And so then that frustration leaks out through the complaining. And it's, it becomes cynical at that point. So I think it is really important to address the culture of complaining. And I think coming in, or even if you've been there a while, it starts with making contained space for complaining, not mm. in terms of ongoing complaining, but finding a place where people can express their feelings and then move it to a conversation about what can we do about that? Right. Where do we go from here? How can I help? Yep. And then moving on. So containing the complaining is really critical. Containing the complaining. Hang on to that one, listeners. So two more questions before we go. Okay. So we're going back to the pleaser personality now, uh, and we're going to poor performer employees. And I, I'm interested... So I think that this is a problem regardless of whether you're a pleaser personality. Nobody wants to move a poor performer out, right? The thing that no one has ever said ever is I wish I had fired that person. I wish I had waited longer to fire that person, right? Any advice for the pleaser personality, something they should have in their head as they think about, I probably need to move this person out, but I... I I, I just, I just, I can't deal with it. Right. So I have many things in my head to give them. Um, The first thing, again, is this is about the mission. Yes. That's the bottom line. The mission has to be front and center. Second, any feedback you need to give this person, you need to give them a chance to see if they can turn it around. Yep. And that information, that feedback is simply information. Because I think when we think about, oh, I have to discipline them, I have to give them hard feedback, Mm -hmm. constructive criticism, we feel like we're making judgment. We feel like we're making it onerous on this person. We're simply giving them the gift of information that they need to be successful. And they can choose to do with that what they will. They may be able to turn it around. They may not but you're giving them a chance to, and you're being faithful to the mission. And if it's not working, the person deserves a chance to, first of all, know, change, or go to a place where they can be more successful. You know, I I know you have, you know, years of experience in supervision and know that oftentimes when it, it is not working for the supervisor, it is not working for that employee either. And I, you know, I have folks who are friends of mine to this day that, you know, that I managed out mm-hmm. who were so much happier when the question was called and they moved on to something that was a better fit. And so I, you know, I, I think the two things are the mission, as you've described, but also just if there's something that's not working, it's not working for them either. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and there's something that's just not 
there's not a good, sometimes it's not a good fit or just, you know, so anyway, it's, it's, it's a, I think it's, it's so hard. It's so hard for the pleaser to, and then the other piece of it is, oh, well, I can't do without somebody in that job. Right. That's very true. Yes. I was also, I was actually talking to a client this morning and I said, we were talking about somebody on their team and I said, so are you not doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing because you're actually doing that person's work? Yes. Yes. I said, well, then if I'm your, if I'm a board chair, I'm thinking to myself, okay, why are you not doing these things? Like the answer well, because Mary isn't holding up her end of the bargain, isn't going to really cut it for me. Right. Yes. Right. So then, then deal with Mary. Okay. Right. So that's an important part of it. It's a very important part of it. So one last question and then, and then give everybody a quick snapshot of your new book and I'll let you go. Nonprofit executive directors do not, as a general rule, do a very good job of modeling self-care. Do you think that, you know, I've even seen it with it where EDs see it as like a, a badge of honor to overwork, to talk about, oh, I worked all weekend long, right? Yeah. What kind of impact does that have on the team? Even if that executive director is saying, you know, you should, ta- you have vacation you haven't taken. Why haven't you taken it? Like, yes. What kind of impact does that have, that does the workaholic boss have on the team? Yes. That has a huge impact because you're, First of all, you're not walking your talk if you're saying use your vacation, but you never do. Second of all, you are sending the message that the work is all that matters. Yeah. That I don't expect you to have a personal life, even if I say I do. And you're modeling that martyrdom is the appropriate response to our mission. And all of that sends such a heavy message to your staff. It's a real disincentive. And eventually people will move on because that is not sustainable. People do sustain it, but not in a healthy way. And and especially generationally, people don't want to live that way anymore. It's sort of a holdover from the boomer generation and we need to get over it. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I think the other thing that people don't really get is that when the executive director goes on vacation and takes time off, if they're, if they're held in, you know, if they're held in high regard, it's almost sort of team building to actually get stuff done to protect that away time of the executive director, right? Is, is, is that there's almost, it almost bonds people in some way to say, yeah, you know, we, 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 we managed quite nicely without having to call Rita at all. Right. And, and like, look at Rita's sending pictures. She's, she's snorkeling, right? Like it's like, there's people don't really actually understand that there's like good feelings to see somebody who's your boss taking time, a picture of that person reading a book on the beach. Like it, it matters. That's very important. That's a great point. And, you know, it also models that none of us are indispensable, which is also important. It's not that I don't matter as a person, but this is a job and somebody else will do it at some point. Totally. Very good. Before we leave, so this has been a very, very instructive conversation, Rita, and I've appreciated all your insights, as I'm sure everybody listening has. Um, uh, give us a quick snapshot of what of your book, Leading for Justice, Supervision, HR, and Culture. Tell us, uh, give, give us a little bite-sized pieces about that book and, and so that we have that one on our radar screen as well. I'm happy to do that. So this is a follow-up book that really speaks to the importance of taking care of internal dynamics and your internal staff while you're working for justice in the world. So many nonprofits focus all their energies externally. It's actually a great follow-up to what we just talked about. Right. You need to take care of internal dynamics. Are you treating people fairly? Are you helping build a culture of inclusion? Are you building an HR department that actually works to support staff, not 
build a wall between them. So it really, it's again, bite-sized pieces. That's how I think, that's how I write. And it really is practical advice you can apply right away to make sure you're walking your talk. So it, um, one last thing I'll just say here is that I see it quite often that those things that make people really good in nonprofit work, advocacy work, you know, being there for their clients, they're just these fierce advocates who are fighting injustice, right? And it's, it's hard to turn that off when you go back to the office, Mm-hmm. And I have seen a lot of what I, some people call lateral violence, where where mm-hmm. people will take that DNA, the DNA that makes them really good at their jobs, might actually make them a rough colleague. Wow. Yes, that's that is a dynamic that happens, and that's an important point of conversation for whoever is partnering with that person or supervising them about how you interact with your staff, how you interact with your colleagues, and how what are we building internally? What is the culture and how does your behavior impact it? Right. Excellent. Excellent. So um, we have had uh, a terrific conversation with Rita Sever. We've been talking about her, her book, Supervision Matters, 100 Bite-Sized Ideas to Transform You and Your Team. And she also has a book that just came out in August of 2021, uh, Leading for Justice, Supervision, HR, and Culture. We will, um, in our show notes, point you to all of Rita's information where you can go ahead and order either of these books or both of them. I happen to have both of them and encourage you to do the same. And Rita, thank you so much for, not just for your time, but this is, you know, there's a lot of things about perform, pro- program evaluation and fundraising, but we always have to remember that it's people who do these things and that they are human resources. And so, um, so thank you for giving us the opportunity to spend a little time being intentional about exactly that. So thank you, Rita. Thank you, Joan. It's been great talking to you, and thank you for your work. Thank you. All right. We will see you next time. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for your work, too. Take care. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, Thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.